0: shalom everyone thank you for joining us for this broadcast we begin a new a new year the turn of the year has taken place and we're ready to get our tour cycle underway again thank you for coming i'm mona judah with line of land ministries and this is our air of shabbat broadcast here at benai shalom now we've just finished the fall holidays i trust that all of you got a great big blessing from that Uh, and that your spirit's been renewed, your soul has been edified, so we're ready to hit it again. And thank you, Lord, that you have kept us, sustained us, and preserved us, and brought us to a new year that we can begin to walk before you. And I pray that this year, as we go through the Torah cycle, it'll be encouraging to you and build you up in your most holy faith. Amen. All right, just a couple of quick announcements. the uh, coming up in December is Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, and we are going to be having a conference here in Oklahoma. It's hosted by Hebraic Family Fellowship here in Norman, the local congregation, and Lionel Lamb will be a part of that. December 15th through the 17th, registration is open now for you to come, and uh, please come and join us and enjoy the festival of Lights with us together. And uh, so with that announcement, uh, let's uh, turn to Kiddush and uh, for the rest of our service.
1: Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath.
2: Barukh Adonai Asher Blessed are You, O Lord our God, King of the Universe has sanctified us by His commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen.
1: Now, Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch
3: Borei
1: Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread.
4: Hamotzi lechem haaretz We give thanks to God for bread Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Hamotzi lechem min
1: haaretz, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us wonderful wives of Proverbs. And Lord, I pray, thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her as she rises while it's yet night to see about the ways of our household. And I pray that you would bless her and encourage her and strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful blessing she is. I pray that you bless her with your very best blessing. And that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all things. And that I confess that I love my wife. So we thank you, Lord, for our wives. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Now let's bless our sons.
4: Keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you.
2: May He lift
4: up His countenance and grant you peace. May you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life.
2: May God make you a good husband and
4: may he prepare a holy wife. The Lord protect and defend you. May His spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness. Oh hear our Sabbath praise.
1: Now let's bless our daughters.
4: and keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you, may he lift up his countenance and grant you peace, may you be like Ruth and like Esther, may the Lord with you ever be, May He bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life. May God make you
2: good mothers and May
4: He bring you husbands who will care Lord protect and defend you, may his spirit fill you with grace, may our family grow in happiness, oh hear our Sabbath praise, amen.
1: Shabbat Shalom. Baruch <speaking in the> Adonai
3: Hamvorach Baruch Adonai Hamvorach
1: Le'olah Hamvahed Blessed the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Mich Mocha.
3: Mich Mocha Ba'elim Micha Mocha, ne darba chodesh, no ra You, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise. Do who in wonders, O Lord? Who is like you, O Lord?
1: Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, alhenu melech asher natan lanu et derech ha'yashua b'mashiach yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Vesham Israel et Hashabat, Lasot Ethashabat Ladortam Burit Olam, B'nei Ovayom, b'nei Israel, Othit Le Olam, Yamim, Asadani, Ethash Mayim, Vaet Hauet Oveom Hashabi Shavat, Vainafash. Altogether. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. i all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema
3: Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shev Ki vod leolam vayed Yeshua haMashiach Hu Adonai. Hero Israel, the Lord is our
1: God. The Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the veya hafta. Veya hafta et adonayo checha, Uv'kol Nashicha uvachole meodecha, veheyu hadevarim haale arshern chimezavka, hayom alevavicha, vashinantam la venecha, veteperdabam pashivtecha, beyeticha, uvlechtaka, verechu shakpika, uvkumika, ukershatam la otoyatecha, veheyu la totavot bininecha, uchetaptama mezuzo patecha, uvisharecha, all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
2: The God of men, we will worship the God. Of ZANG And all the earth replies, Holy are you, and all the angels cry.
1: Welcome to a brand new year, a brand new Torah cycle here. Uh, As we begin, we turn the book back, we turn back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to begin a brand new Torah cycle for this year. I'm excited and blessed as we go and we get to uh, have a renewing of God's Word, God's instruction, a renewing of the commandments, His in, in instruction for us, so that we can learn and grow in Him and build us up in our most holy faith. Before I get into it, uh, there's one thing I do want to share, is that one who opens up the Scripture, the Bible, and might turn, get a Bible for the first time, or might uh, open it up after a while and go to Genesis 1 and begin a study of the Scripture, a study of the Word of the Lord. There's almost like a, there's a caution that needs to be given to some, uh, as well as an encouragement all at the same time, that when you go in and you start reading the Word, there is so much in it there's so much depth to the word of the lord the content the mysteries of the scripture all of the things all the commandments the story of creation all of these things that the caution is is that one can get into it so far so much and then get hung up on something we're going to begin a Torah cycle here and we're going to teach the Torah portion and I'm going to go through the first five and a half chapters, uh, attempt to uh, touch on the first five and a half chapters of Genesis here and go into the instruction. And it's so easy and it it would be so easy to continue and stay right here in Genesis and continue to teach uh, and, and learn and study those things and, and how the world came to be that we might not move on and get past and get to some of the other aspects of Scripture. And for someone who is new, immature in their faith, I would always caution somebody that when you go to study the word I pray that you would continue and, and continue to seek the revelation. If you get to a point where you have a question or you get stopped and you get hung up on something, I encourage you to move on, go past, because in later um, in later scriptures, sometimes those answers can come to you and those revelations can come to you. Um, one of the things that somebody, if you commit your life to studying the scripture, one of the things that you have to have when you go in and do that is Humility. When you have a profess of faith in the Lord, you have to have that degree of humility that a belief in God is, is simply that. There is a being greater than us, greater than I, and I am less. I am humbled by that there is something and someone greater than I. You have to have that humility in your belief. You do that also in reading the Scripture as well. The people who commit their lives to studying the Scripture, whether that's ministers or teachers, you have to set your life aside, die unto yourself, if you will, that you have to have that humility to know and study these things because there's so much richness and depth in that Scripture. The other times that somebody would latch on and start reading and studying the Word is one who's been humbled by certain circumstances in their life. One who is down on their luck, who is struggling, who is hurting. Those are the people that also turn and commit their life to studying the Word of the Lord. So there is a humility that has to be had when one goes and studies the Scripture. I pray that we always do it by choice, that we humble ourselves so that we then turn our life, our attention, over to the Lord and the Word of the Lord, and that we don't require that the Lord humble us, through circumstance, through disaster, through struggle, that we would then turn to Him. May we always be in the former group that we would turn and we would humble ourselves before the Lord and seek after His Word and His instruction. Amen? So if you would now, turn in your Bible to page 1, where we will now open the Scripture here to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to do the blessing before the Torah as you are opening the Scripture to... uh, bless and bring in as we begin the reading of the Torah cycle. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion is Bereshit. The very first portion in the Torah cycle extends through uh, Genesis chapter 6 at verse 8. So there is a lot of content here in our portion and I'm it would be very difficult to try and touch on all of the aspects of this Torah portion in the time that I have. But I'm going to do my best to bring out some of the highlights, some of the instances of this portion, the story of creation through the book of Genesis that is... Uh, uplifting, and you can take application into your own life and be encouraged and uplifted in your holy faith as we go and we read. Of course, the very first verse of the Bible, many of it know by heart, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, that that verse reads, Bereshit bara Elohim, Et Hashamayim va et haaret. And what we have here is seven Hebrew words that ushers in the creation of the world and the heavens that God has brought. Now Those of us that have read more of the Bible and know many other scriptures, there's scriptures that stand out, particularly those that talk about how the Lord has the power to declare the ends from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not yet been. Many people have gone and committed lives of study into looking at the beginning of creation and are able to find so many other stories and patterns and parallels that uplift us in all the other aspects of our faith. In that very first verse of of the Scripture in the Hebrew, I can describe to you the presence of Yeshua, the Messiah, His sacrifice, His salvation, present in the very first verse of Scripture. That fourth word of that Hebrew verse is the word et, which is made up of the Aleph and the Tav. In the beginning was the word, as John says, and then also says the Lord, in through his revelation, says that he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, or in the Hebrew, the Aleph and the Tav, that Yeshua is that word, and his presence is here in the very first verse of scripture. I can even tell more if I just stick to the first word of scripture, or even the first letter of scripture. Our portion begins Bereshit. It begins with the Hebrew letter Bet. The very plan of God and His heart and His desire and what He's intending to do. That letter Bet in the Hebrew means a house. God is going to build His house. He's going to build, and or it could represent containment. What He's going to do is He's created the expanses of heavens. But what He does is He's contained and He's compressed life into the earth, this planet that we live on. And he's going to create his house and he wants to dwell in that house. In that word Bereshit, it's made up of the letters a bet, a resh, an aleph, a shin, a yod, and a tav. You can take all of those different letters of the word Bereshit you can mix, put them around, and you can create other words from that single word. You can create the word "father" (aleph and bet), which means "of." You can create the Aramaic word for "son," which is "bar," which is a bet and aleph and resh. And so we can tell the story of God creating a house. He is the father of that house. He is going to have a son of that house. If you take, use actually all six of those letters, mix them around a little bit, you can make the words. Resh Beit, which is head of the house. The father is going to be the head of the house. He is going to have a son. And all the blessings that come with it is that is the very story of God, His redemptive work through His Son Yeshua, and that He is establishing us and He wants to invite us into His house. This is the story of all life, of all time, that can be taught and studied and, and you can learn from that using simply the first word of all of Scripture. It's an amazing thing. And Yeshua is present there. The Aleph and the Tav is also present in that word as well. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, talks about how all things were created through Him, Messiah Yeshua. And it's that Aleph Tav that Yeshua and His presence is there at the creation. So, through Yeshua, through all of this power, there's an amazing thing that takes place with the creation of the world. We all have known the story, whether we heard it in Sunday school or heard it uh, instructed to us, whether little kids learn it with flannel graphs on uh, learning about the days of creation. And so we'll go through briefly and we'll go through and we'll cover and talk about what the days of creation and then the amazing prophetic parallel, many have heard before as well, that connects the days of creation with the story, the ages, and the millennia of all time. In day 1, God created light and He separated light from darkness. Day 2, He separated the waters waters from the waters and basically the formation of the earth itself. Day 3, He created dry ground and plants yielding seed to grow on that dry ground. Day 4, He created the sun, the moon, the stars, the lights, and the expanse of heavens. Day 5, He created all manner of creatures in the sea and in the air. And in day 6, He created man and He created all of the animals. And on day 7, we know, He rested from His work and He took a sabbath for the very first time and god delighted in all of his creation and he said it was very good the creation that he had made this is a connection that you can make in the uh, instruction and in other parts of scripture where it says one day is a thousand years a thousand years is one day then we can look at the very history of the world and connect it to the days of creation it's done so in this way in the first day, God created light and darkness. In the first thousand years of history, we have the life of Adam who lived to be close to, nine, to a thousand years. And what he did in his actions with him and Eve, what they did is they brought in sin into the world. They, they, there was a created distinction between light, darkness, between sin and death and life and obedience. In the second day where we have the separation of the waters, in the second millennia of time, we have the story of Noah and the flood and how a great massive worldwide flood changed the entire world in which we lived and it was through that that God saved the righteous people that he has called and that that is the story that connects to day two of creation. Day three, we created dry ground and plants yielding, yielding seed. In the third millennia, what we have is we have the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and how the planting of the Lord, Israel, became a nation. And that through that, all sort of manners, and we learned about the uh, promise through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so his seed would go out and would be prosperous in the world. Day four, we have the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. In the fourth millennium, we have uh, the all of the stories of the kings and nations and prophets that came and all pointed to and led to and were great signs and wonders leading to the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah. And the number four, throughout Scripture, will tie to Messiah Yeshua as well. In day five, what we have is we have the creation of the creatures. Now, at the beginning of the fifth millennia, What we have is we have the sacrifice of the Messiah and that through Him, through the conquering of death, He has created us and made us new creatures within Him and in the faith. And on the sixth day of creation, the creation of man, the creation of animals and the commandment that was given to man to have dominion over the earth in the last uh, 1,000 years of creation, what we have is we have man's growing dominion over the world, that we have the power to move to and, thro- to and fro across the earth. We can leave the earth and come back to it. And the knowledge has increased, and man has been... Uh, the The knowledge that has increased within man and mankind has increased in the last 1,000 years. Now, of course... I talked about the seventh day that God rested. Many of us who believe in the second coming, the coming of the Lord, that what He will do is He will come and He will reign on earth for 1,000 years. That the Lord will return in the year 6,000 and that for 1,000 years in the Sabbath of millennia, if you will, that He will reign and there will be a great deal of peace a great deal of rest that will take place. And through the days of creation, if you take that one phrase, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is as one day, you can connect that to the very story, the very history of the world through the telling of the creation. What an amazing thing that God is so powerful. His words, He's so intelligent. Again, the humility that we have to believe in God and believe that this is how the world came to be and that His knowledge is so great that He can declare the ends from the beginning that it is a humbling aspect to believe that and understand that. What we always want to do is it's great when we can reveal some of these things and we can be encouraged to up-walk Walk uprightly before the Lord. And I'm reminded of the verse that's there toward the end of our Torah cycle in the book of Deuteronomy where it says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. And so may we be encouraged when there are revelations that take place and encouragement that takes place when we learn new ways that God is so powerful, so good, and His blessing extends to us even to this modern time, all the way with words that were spoken and were written down in ancient times. Amen? Let us now go to, now the story of the creation of Adam, the creation of man. Excuse me. Here in uh, chapter 2, verse 7... We read this, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him his nostrils the breath of life and man became became a living being. So what we have here is man being created from the dust of the earth. Now, what some people will say, and any time that you're talking about Genesis, the creation, what you might run into is you might run into conflict, argument with, Someone who is of a scientific mind, if you will. That many of people in the world, secular science, endeavors to disprove the story and the telling of creation according to the Bible. The thing that's interesting is that many things within science, however, prove the connection to Scripture. Prove that certain things within creation are true, are real. We have evidence as we go into next week's portion as we start talking about the story of Noah. There is proof throughout the world that there was, <clears throat> at one point in time, a worldwide flood. We have scientific evidence of that. And so then, can we? is there any scientific evidence to these words when we read, man was formed from the dust of the ground. Is there any scientific evidence of that? Absolutely. Because the dust of the earth, dirt, anything in nature, everything is... Um, Uh, Chemically and scientifically, we are of a carbon-based society or a carbon-based world. And we humans and uh, animals are carbon-based life forms. The same, you break down the very individual elements of science and we are made from those same elements. And when we die, when we go down, when our bodies are buried and go into the dust of the earth, there is a decomposition to where you give it enough time, and whatever we were made of, whatever we were creative, created of, will go back to exactly what it was, back to the ground from whence we came. So there scientifically is proof that we have come from the ground. There's a connection between us, man, the earth, the, all of the part of creation that God has made. Let us continue reading now. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant in the sight and is good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. If you notice there, it's very interesting. God did not make man in the garden of Eden. God made man somewhere else and placed him in the Garden of Eden. That's very, specific, that's very important. Because if you think about this, and it, this is what Eden is. Let me, let's talk about what Eden represents. The meaning of Eden means pleasure, or that which is good, that which is pleasant. That garden was the most beautiful thing of all of creation. It was, it was a utopia. It was a paradise. It was beautiful. Everything was pleasant, good, pleasurable. Man was created and put there. In the nature of man, that our nature is not necessarily to be of all the good thing and all the good creation of God. We were placed there as a blessing to be able to dwell and occupy that place. That's where man was placed. If you also notice there, there were two trees in the garden. We always talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see all the pictures and artist depictions of Adam and Eve standing before an apple tree with a serpent on a branch and that they're standing before one tree. There wasn't just one tree in the garden. There were two trees. There was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All of these things all had to do with God manifesting Himself, His presence, His good work in the, all of creation and then allowing man to be blessed to go into that garden. He gives Adam the ability to name all of the animals, name the trees. He's, given, he's allowed to eat of anything of the garden. Very interesting here. Let me also now, let me skip ahead to to verse 15 and now let me continue reading here. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. What did God tell man to do? What did God tell man to, when he goes into that garden, He tells him to go and work. He tells him to go and tend the garden. He tells him to go and keep the garden. To protect it. God has given him this blessing and then has commanded him to watch over it. He's given the command of God. He's given the word of the Lord. There's a very funny uh, video that you can see sometimes that there's um, there's a very good pastor by the name of Miles Monroe that he uses all of this instruction talking about what man received. If you notice, man has not yet received woman. Woman has not yet been created. Man was created outside the garden. He was placed in the garden. Then he was given even more things. He was given work to do. Then he was to tend the garden. He was to keep the garden. He received the commandments, the words, the instructions of God. All of those things, all were given to man before woman was ever made or created. And it's interesting because then the very next verse after that, where it says, and the Lord God said, "...it is not good that that man should be alone." That man, the man who is in the presence of God, who was placed there, who has been blessed by God, who does the work of God, who obeys the voice of God, that is the man who's not good to be alone. This is a teaching that can go that can be given to young people, young men as they go, and they're trying to figure out their life, and they desire to get married and, and have a wife. And what we have in the very first marriage of all time in scripture and instruction, we have a teaching that can be given to someone. To a man, to a young man, in what is it that he needs to have before he is ready to receive a woman. He needs to work. He needs to do the work of the Lord. He needs to follow the command of the Lord. He needs to be a protector of the blessings God has given to him. He needs to be able to cultivate the ground. He needs to be able to cause it to grow and to flourish. That is the man That should not be alone. That is the man who is ready to receive a wife. If a man does not do those things, if he does not follow the word of the Lord, if he does not work, if he does not obey what the Lord has said, if he's not in the presence of the Lord and has been given blessings from the Lord, then that is not a man who is ready to receive a wife. Great piece of instruction that it is for someone in their growth and as they grow that can be given to young men and I'm sure young women love to hear that as well as they would probably love to find a man who works, who obeys the Lord and you will find him in the presence of the Lord. Amen? Excuse me. In the name Adam, it's also very interesting that I've always loved this, the way that the Hebrew words and letters, how those things break down and all the teachings that can come out of that. We were formed out of the dust of the ground, which that Hebrew word is Adamah, which which is an Aleph, a Dalit, a Mem, and a Hay. And then what happens is Adam... Man, Adam, was formed out of Adamah. Now, all you have to do is take away one Hebrew letter, that is the hay, to take ground and turn it into man. That letter hay means behold, or the revelation. And so if you take that away, and you said, we have ground, then behold, we have man. There's an amazing teaching that is within that. Now, even within the name Adam, Aleph, Dalit, Mem, then you take away the Aleph, and what is the strength of man is the Hebrew word Dom, which is blood, which is life, which is the, what is truly that goes through everyone's body that gives them life, gives them strength. The strength of man is the blood within them. Something else I love to see in the name Adam, Aleph Dalit Mem, is is the pattern of God and God in His plurality. We believe that God, we've heard it many times before, He's manifested Himself in at least three different ways, and it can be broken down simply in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not to subscribe to the doctrine of the Trinity, but there is an aspect of plurality in God that He has manifested Himself as a Father, the Creator, He's manifested Himself as the Son, Yeshua the Messiah, and He has manifested Himself as the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. You take those three Hebrew letters of Adam, I believe we were made in the image of God, so there's a pattern and a shadow inside each man of God. We ourselves also have, we're talking about the body, soul, and spirit of a man, where we have the soul, the very essence of who someone is, which I believe connects us to the Father, uh, who that aspect of God. We have a body, a physical body, and then when we believe that Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God, that He is God manifested in the physical flesh, that our body is a connection and there's a parallel to Yeshua the Messiah and that part of God. And then we all have a spirit. We have our own spirit, which I believe is our thoughts and our emotions, and that's not intangible, cannot be measured or quantified. There is also the Spirit of God. That we are. if we are led by the Spirit of God, then we set our spirit aside and we follow Him. God's thoughts God's th- and emo- God's emotions. So in that, those three letters of Adam, we have the Aleph, which is strength, which is power, which is the first, which is, came before everything else. And I believe that does connect to the Father. The letter dalit, which means actually a door. And what is it that Yeshua said? That He said, I am the door. Whoever comes to me and knocks. And that letter dalit can represent the Messiah and the body of God and our physical body in Adam. And then the last letter is the Mem, which means waters and nim and water has always tied directly to the Spirit of God, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that the heavens themselves, Hashemayim, was made of waters, Mayim, and that there is a pattern of, and and the illustration of the image of God, a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit, and in the us, there is a soul, there is a body, and there is a spirit, and in the very name Adam, we can learn these things as well. So now, let us move on, and let's now go to chapter 3 of Genesis, where it reads this Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of the, every tree of the garden? Now, something about the serpent. We all know as we're going through the story, we know what the serpent represents. The serpent represents the enemy. The serpent represents the adversary, the deceptions of the devil, of that which wants to do harm, that which wants to be contrary to the creation of God, that wants to destroy the creation of God. God created the world and called it good. And the enemy, the adversary, he wants to destroy that which is good. So we know the embodiment of the serpent and what this really means. It says the serpent was more cunning Other scriptures say it was more sly or more subtle than any other creature of the field. And that's what happens when the enemy works in our lives. He's more subtle in his actions, in what he does. Sometimes we'll know, because even the enemy, even the devil, can portray himself as an angel of light. He can be deceiving and deceptive and sly and cunning. And you could not even know you're talking to the enemy or talking to someone who is doing the work of the adversary because it's done so subtly and it is sly. And that's something we always have to be cautious of as we go, as we hear, as we fellowship with one another, as we go to learn more about the Scripture. When we hear something... The work of the enemy can sometimes be at play and we don't even know it and recognize it. That's something we should always keep in mind whenever we're going, we're praying before the Lord and asking the Lord, Lord, what is your truth? What is right? What should be done uh, about this matter or this matter? And always seeking after the Lord and seeing what is the true and pray that he reveals the enemy and his work even though he can be sly at times. So he goes and he talks to the woman. Notice, the woman has not been named Eve yet. I always thought that was interesting. And he says that it's like, has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? What's interesting there is that uh, the enemy is asking even, has he said anything? about not eating any tree? Well, if we go back a verse, now obviously Eve didn't have her uh, copy of the New King James and wasn't able to go back one chapter and and read what was actually said. But what happened there is, if you remember, the Lord God commanded the man to not eat of any tree of the garden, or, or to eat of any tree of the garden, but not the one of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. He didn't say it. He commanded it. So, that already you can see the word play that the enemy is using to say, yeah, did he suggest that you not eat of the tree of good and evil? Did he or maybe, you know, make a recommendation, give a piece of advice, take it or leave it, that you eat everything of, of every other tree? No, he commanded it. That's the work of the enemy, constantly taking, diminishing. There's an element of truth in every lie that takes place. He also says this, has God indeed, just God, not the Lord God, because everywhere else here when it says that God did something, it says the Lord God created the world. The Lord God commanded. But when the enemy speaks, he just says, God takes away a little bit, takes away that yod hey vav He just says Elohim, not the yod hey vav hey Elohim, but let's diminish what, who God is and His power. That's what the enemy is constantly trying to do. That you should not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman, talking back to the serpent, says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Wait, hold on. Did God command him, command man to not touch the tree or the fruit? No. just said, don't eat it. Now, one of the things that's very interesting here is that man, Adam, he was given the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not the woman. She hadn't been made yet. It was man's instruction and what he needed to do, being in the presence of God, doing all those things, it was his job to teach his wife what the word was and what the command was. Did he teach her that word? Well, she responds as if she knows that God did say, wait, no, he didn't say, he commanded, but she's getting that part wrong too, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Now, a couple of things. One, is she embellishing the commandment and saying not to touch it? Or did Adam mess up the instruction and he also told her that you're not to touch it? We don't really know. But what we do know is this. Is the command of the Lord was not obeyed. It was not heard. He did not obey the command of the Lord. And she herself is saying, yeah, he said this, but there is... But there in truth the mistake that was made, be it Adam's mistake, Eve's mistake, what is then where the enemy then comes in and is able to plant the lie? Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you can see the serpent there, especially when it says you shall not touch it, you mean like, like this? You can see the little word picture of the, the, the serpent poking the, the fruit and t- saying whether it's like, you can touch it, I'm not dead. The woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. How is anyone able to determine that from a piece of fruit? Do not know. She took its fruit, she ate, she gave it to her husband with her, And he ate. Wait a minute. The husband was with her the entire time. He's the one who received the instruction. He's the one who's listening to this entire conversation between the serpent and the woman. And he's not said anything up to this point. That is what it takes for those that if we are to follow after the command of the Lord, sometimes we have to be bold in our belief and in our following of the command. The second the serpent said, Has indeed God said? The man should have piped up and said, No, he didn't say, he commanded. And when he's talking to his wife and then he says, he, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. He should have said, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He did say we shouldn't eat it. He didn't say anything about touching it. He was there the whole time. And yet he said nothing. This is the sin that took place. This is where one did not follow after and did not do what he needed to do. This is the first family of creation. This is the first husband, the first wife. And what we live in our modern day society, one of the greatest challenges that we have and that we face in modern day is the very destruction of the family unit and the family structure that God has created and established in creation. For there to be a husband and a wife and a a father and a mother and that what we live now today is that The family unit, the family structure has just been destroyed and demolished. Where we have people giving in marriage and divorce prevalent, everything. And what we have here is that is a replication of the very first sin of man when a husband and a wife, when a husband cannot do what he is supposed to do as a husband and a woman does not submit and is a part of that family and they work together to determine any issue what is good, what are we having for dinner. They sit there, they're standing in front of a tree, and we have the very mistake that is made in many homes around the world is a replication of the very sin, that, the very first sin that took place. That is one of the things that those that are in ministry, those that work and teach and, and minister to the brethren, that's one of the major things that anyone who is in ministry who submitted their heart to do that work, that is what we have to deal with on a regular basis is encouraging men and husbands to be good husbands, to be good men, for wives and for that unit and that structure to work and work appropriately as it was designed by God. When those things don't happen, that's when we have problems, and that's why we have sin in the world, is because that was the mistake from the very beginning. That's one of the reasons why in my heart, in my desire, when I go to teach and encourage and speak, That is one of my focuses, always trying to be my desire for myself to be a better husband, to be a better father to my children, to teach them what they need to know, what they need to learn, to be in the presence of God and receive all the blessings that God has given to me. And to work for the Lord, to tend the ground, whichever, wherever he has planted me, to do that work, and to hear and obey his words, and then to take those words and teach them to anyone who comes in and walks beside me. That is all that was asked of Adam in the garden, and that is what I desire to do in my life, and I encourage others that that should be their focus in their life, To do those things. Once you do those things, then you get to stay in the presence of God. You get to follow and continue to receive His blessings, His provisions, all of those things. That if these sins had not taken place, Adam and Eve would not have been banished from the garden. Amen? Let me continue on here and talk about some of the other things dealing with the curse that came upon. There are several curses that take place. There's a curse upon the serpent, there's a curse upon the woman, and there is a curse that is placed upon the man for this sin. What happens is they came into the knowledge of good and evil, they realized they were naked, and then they went and hid themselves. God came and his presence came into the garden and he's asking where they are. And then they have a conversation and Adam says, uh, we were afraid because we were naked. And God asks, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? Did you sin? Did you not obey what I said? And of course that is exactly what they did. God turns to the serpent and he curses the serpent. He says, Behold, you've done this. You've, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his heel. This curse that is placed upon the serpent who we've already established is a symbolism of the adversary, of the enemy. That he was cursed to the dust of the earth. I've actually gone on to believe that the dust of the earth is the domain of the enemy. That the enemy, that that's his way, the, the place in which the enemy can rule is the dust of the earth. There are certain things in creation, in the world, that such things as bacteria, viruses, protozoa, microscopic things, that biblically you could define as the dust of the earth. Those things that can enter into your body, past all the natural defenses that God has created inside our bodies, if it gets to the right place, it could kill you and destroy the very good thing that God has created in you, in your life, and in your body. I tend to believe that those things that cause harm to the creation is those things are nothing but perversions of creation because they have fallen under the dominion of the enemy and the serpent. All of those things that can cause harm to you and hurt you and hurt God's creation and destroy creation, those things are the perversion of the enemy. It's also interesting here, in your scripture, if you look in verse 15, if it says this, talking about enmity between the the serpent and the woman, but then it says, He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his heel. I see a capital H on both of those for for he and for his, that there is a miniature prophecy there for the seed of the woman being the promised Messiah of God, that it's going to be a conflict between the Messiah and between the enemy and the serpent. Very interesting thing there. Woman is cursed as well. She's cursed that she will have pain during childbirth. And then man, let me go ahead and move along because I'm running out of time. Now, to, as he said to Adam, verse 17, then, he said, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I, of which I commanded, saying, you shall not eat of it. Then he says this, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring, be, bring forth to you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This connection here has to do with what that sin has caused. What that sin has caused is that has caused a curse upon the land, the earth, the ground, the very creation of God. There was a connection between us, between man, and the very house of God. We were meant to be in the presence of God, in the house of God, to be a part of His family, His life, in His house on this earth. But because of our sin, because of our disobedience, the ground has been cursed. That's what, and this is a connection that will go throughout all the rest of Scripture. When we're talking about, when we get into Abraham, we get into the promised land, we get into the whole reason why the children of Israel will be delivered from Egypt and going on a journey, 40 years, to go to the promised land, they are meant to go and return back to the land and re-establish that connection where the ground has now been cursed. That is what all of restoration and all of redemption is meant to, meant to be. For God to bring His people and to, the people who He created, starting with Adam, and bringing them back to the land and establishing the place where He promised them and intended for them to be from the very beginning. When we go and look at all the prophecies, as we go through the Torah cycle this year and go many places uh, throughout as we study the Word this year, we should always look and take note of where is the people, what land are they going to, and what is God truly doing? He's intending to bring his people to the promised land, to repair the breach, repair and remove the curse that Adam brought upon the land and himself. That is the connection back to when God says he wants to deliver his people, he's going to be, send the Messiah to be a shepherd, to bring all the lost sheep and return them back to the land, that is to go back and make restitution for the very sin that Adam committed in our very first portion of Scripture. Our connection to the ground is prevalent. It continues on, which I don't have time to talk about Cain and Abel, where it says, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground when his, the brother was, his blood had come from the ground. That connection was there and that's what was severed and that's what was removed from us through this sin. I pray that we are blessed as we go through this Torah cycle and as we go into the next couple of weeks and going into these portions, we're going to learn more about the Genesis and the creation and what God has intended for His people and His land. And we will continue uh, to learn these things and be encouraged as we go another year through the Torah cycle and are blessed by all the teaching and instruction and things that God has blessed us with and given to us through His Word. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before You here on this Sabbath day. We thank You, Lord, for Your teaching and instruction. We thank You, Lord, for Your creation and what You have blessed in our life. Father, we thank You, Lord, for that You have made us, that You have made a place for us to be here, Father. Lord, you said that it was good in, after you had created it, Father, and I pray that we would continue to be your people, that you would bless us and strengthen us and encourage us and cause us to turn our focus to you. Let us walk in humility, Lord, in all of our studies and all the things that we do as we study your word in the scripture day by day, week by week, Father. I pray that you make it new and alive for us, each and every time that we read it. Even if we've read it many times before, Lord, I pray that you would have it be a renewal in our spirit, Lord, as we again hear your words and your instructions through the Law of Moses and through our Holy Scriptures. So we thank you, Lord, for all these blessings. We give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise. It's in your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher Torah temet Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah.
0: Amen. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Uh, this year... Uh, Ephraim is doing the Torah portions, and he just got us started with Bereshit. And I thought I would change it up a little bit this year. Last year we taught all the Hoff Torah portions, the after the prophets and the other writings with it. And this year I thought it would be fun for us to go through and, and identify the New Testament portions, the Brit Hadashah portions that talk about what the Torah portion was about. And hopefully, as we go through this, you're going to see how powerfully that the torah has been driving the new testament that this idea that the new testament somehow is separate from the torah separate from the law is sheer nonsense um and that you're going to find that the the deeper thinking of what is being expressed in the new testament portions originates from the torah and from the original teaching of moses so that's our hope and our goal as we go through and do it for this year. So if you would, turn with me now for our New Testament portion to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Uh, as Ephraim was sharing, our portion is bear a sheet in the Torah. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this phrase in the beginning that he talked about bear a sheet in the beginning is a very, very powerful phrase uh, for us. Ephraim mentioned a couple of things about just the meaning of the letters seems to tell the story of the Son of God and God building his house and how he would be the firstborn son and that he would be seated at the right hand of the Almighty. All of those themes are within that first word. You know, if you just take the deeper meaning of each letter, all of those things come out. And so here's John, who was one of the apostles, and he's writing his gospel to give us testimony of who Yeshua is. Now, in the traditional Hebrew way, um, we Hebrews tend to do things a little backwards from the other people. Um, Most people read left to right. In Hebrew, you read right to left. And sometimes this Eastern logic of presentation gets a little befuddling to us in the West but but it's very easy to learn, and the Bible is written in Eastern logic. This is Hebrew logic. So when we're looking at the New Testament passage, we need to get the Hebrew understanding of it, not necessarily the Western world's winking or Greek, Rome, Roman, Greco understanding with it. Let me just tell you, uh, this book, for example, it doesn't start off by telling you the purpose. This gospel doesn't tell you the verse. does off in chapter 21, uh, where John says, These things that I've written, I've written so that you might believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah, and believing in him, you might receive eternal life. The purpose of the book is that. So, let's start with that understanding. John has a very specific purpose, and he's going to try to convince us that Yeshua of Nazareth is the promised Son of God, the promised Messiah, and that by believing in him, we're going to receive the gift of eternal life. With that as a background, let's see what John has to say. John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the phrase takes us right to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the world. But as Ephraim mentioned to you, that translation that we just gave for the for that That's not what the Hebrew actually says. The Hebrew actually has another word in there that's not translated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All we did was translate six of those seven Hebrew words. The fourth Hebrew word is the word et, aleph, and Tov. There's this other word that's right in there in the beginning. So John says, in the beginning was the word. What word is he referred to? I submit to you he's referring to that fourth word in Genesis 1.1, the Aleph and Tav word, the word et. Now it has been the question of the sages of Israel, and this is going on for a long time in Judaism. There are 14 different places In the Bible, where the sages of Israel see this word, et. And they ask the question, who or what is the et, the Aleph and Tav, that's being referred to here? Let me just, I'm not going to give you all 14, but let me just give you a hint of what we're talking about. Genesis 1.1. Who or what is this et that's at the beginning? That's the question of the sages. It goes on down a little bit further. For example, when we get to Genesis 37.12, which is referred to by the sages as the first verse of redemption. Did you hear what I just said? The first verse to tell us the story of redemption is this verse, the, uh, Genesis 37.12. And it's when, Je- uh, when uh, Joseph is sent to check the flock out to see to their welfare, the brethren and the, and the flock's welfare. And some translation says, and he was sent to Jacob's flock, or his father's flock. That's not what it says in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew it says he was sent to check on the Aleph-Tav flock, the flock that belonged to Aleph-Tav, which was the sons of Jacob. That's what Joseph was sent to. That's the first verse of the story of redemption. There's another very powerful reference by the prophet Zechariah in which it says, They will look upon him whom they pierced. Well, that's a prophecy about the Messiah and his crucifixion. We've all heard that many times before. In the Hebrew, it doesn't say him or whom. It says literally, They will look upon Aleph Tav they pierced. Yeshua himself, speaking to uh, John, this apostle, when he wrote the book of Revelation, said, I am the Aleph and the top." He's answering the question of the sages over all of the years. Every time you see this Aleph, top, that's me. I'm the Messiah. That's who I am. Well, John really learned this lesson so from the very beginning of his gospel laying out the argument as to why you should be believing in Yeshua of Nazareth to be the Messiah the first thing he says is this is the Messiah that was talked about in Genesis 1 1 this is the olive top that we've been looking for this is the very first reference when I was uh, recently at my high school reunion and I got to go back a uh, short time ago uh, back at Labor Day weekend and there's a there's a A friend of mine, a classmate, he went into the ministry right out of high school. He went to Bible college, and he's been in the ministry all of his life. And we had a chance to sit down and chat for just a little bit, and I knew this was going to happen. I I was trying to kind of share with him just a little bit to get his interest, and I asked him, I said, where's the first reference of the Messiah in, in the Bible? Where's the very first place? And so he said, well, uh, uh I guess I'd say there in Genesis 3, the promise to Eve, the mother that uh, her seed would bruise uh, the head of the serpent that had deceived her. And I said, that's the traditional one that's given by the church. I said, where's the real one? And he was like, what? It was new information. I said, it's right there in verse 1. In verse 1, the Messiah is being introduced to you. But you don't see him, do you? Boy, if there was one thing that would stir me as an average Christian, I want to know everything there is to know about the Messiah, because that's who I believe in for the redemption. They don't even know the first verse that introduces the Messiah. They don't know the first verse that explains the redemption story. You know, they think the Exodus is the redemption story. It is. But the first verse of it is when Joseph has to go to Egypt first. Because the stage is set by Joseph going to Egypt for all of Israel, the children of Israel, to be in Egypt to come up out of the Exodus. You have to explain how did they get there. And they got there because of Joseph. And the same is true of all of the elements of our faith. The Messiah is the author and finisher of our faith and our redemption. He's there from the beginning. So let me suggest to you that what John is really writing here in this very first verse of his gospel, he's trying to explain the Aleph to you. Listen to what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Did you know that Et is sitting right beside Elohim? Elohim and Et, are sitting right beside each other. And the Et, the Aleph was sitting with God. Now, right off the bat, that's an argument for that the Messiah is equal to God and is God, but that God has parts. And that's always the way it's going to be manifested throughout all of it. Another evidence of the use of the at, when you hear about Jacob's ladder, the dream that Jacob had, when he looked up and he saw the ladder, you know, guess who was at the top of the ladder? The Aleph Tav. The Aleph Tav was sitting there beside Almighty God. We are told that the, that the Messiah sits at the right hand of the Almighty. That's absolutely correct. That is His place. The Messiah's place is at the right hand of the Father. And the right hand always represents the strength. The strength of the Father is manifested in the Messiah. So, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There shouldn't be any question with any Messianic believer is the Messiah God. Apostle John says he is. And it's emphatic in the understanding of the Hebrew logic of understanding the Scripture. That's not a foreign idea. That's not a new idea. That is exactly the way the Hebrew Scripture is laid out. He was in the beginning with God. And more particularly, it goes to say, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that was didn't, that has come into being. You know what he just said? He said the Messiah is the Creator. The Creator is the Messiah also. So when we read the creation story, are we looking and saying, oh my goodness, look what the Messiah did for us. Look how he created. I know that for uh, me... When it came to really understanding the Torah, I had read these verses when I was a younger man over and over again. But it wasn't until I turned to the Torah, read the creation story, and really seriously considered the creation story that it hit me that John had been telling me, that, you know, the Messiah, Yeshua, that you love, you know, he, he did that. He did that creating. So, Wow. You know how many people in this world think that God did certain things in the Old Testament and changed his mind and then he brought the Messiah in and he's doing a new thing? That is absolutely not true. The Messiah has been there from the beginning. From the very beginning. And he was the creator also. He will be there at the end too. He will be the final judge. Now, when he came to us, he didn't come to judge the world. He came to redeem and save it. And he said so. I've come to do the work of redemption, not the work of judgment. We'll do that later. Okay? So God has offered mercy first before he lays out the judgment. Now it goes on to say the following. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, the very first element of the creation story is the creation of light. Light is the thing that comes first. Uh, for those of you who do monitor and do enjoy uh, the study of the sciences, and especially physical sciences, scientists have now just discovered, are you ready for this? They've just discovered, of all of the things that we see as evidence in the universe, they have now been convinced that light was the first thing that ever came here. And they've scientifically proved it. I agree with them. In the very beginning, the first thing was light. The first evidence of this universe was light. And the reason is because light is energy. It's not matter, it's energy and you have to have energy first before you're going to have matter you have to have energy first in our lifetime we have had some very interesting um, scientific experiences done for example uh, when it comes to uh, energy and matter uh, most of mankind throughout all we know how to take matter and turn it into energy but we don't know how to take energy and turn it into matter. Because in the creation story, the first thing it says is God took energy and he turned it into matter. Now, we know how to take a log, which is matter, and I know how to get it hot enough, it'll burn, and it makes heat and light, which are two spectrums of energy. And then when I get done with it, well, was just some ash and basic elements of creation. Carbon. You know, that's the, the ash. That's what's left. And, but I've converted that log, which used to be living, into energy, heat and light. And the same thing uh, is about all the other stuff that we do. Gasoline we buy. It's a matter. We, what do we do? We turn it into heat and light. We, we cause it to explode, burn, and, and it produces pressure. And, and we use it to drive our cars with. We take the energy of air exploding air, and we turn it into mechanical energy that moves our car and and, and so forth. But mankind has never been able to take energy and turn it into matter until just recently. To do that, you have to take um, atoms and you have to bust them down into the tiniest of elements. And we're not talking about a nucleus and an electron and, and a proton, and a neutron. We're talking about taking protons and busting protons apiece apart. And by the way, that's what happens when you have a nuclear detonation. You're blowing atoms up and all of the parts of the atoms. You're blowing them up. You're exploding. And when you destroy that matter, there's this incredible release of energy. In fact, there are four great forces that we discover in the universe that causes everything to move. We have the electromagnetic force. We have gravity. We have the strong nuclear force and the, and the weak nuclear force. That's what that's what the world has come to know as big world physics. That's how it is. And those, are, those energies affect other things, and we play with those energies, and we play with the matter to, to, to get the energy to do what we want it to do and so forth. But recently, and I'm going back a few years, but recently they, they built these things called colliders. And these are huge things. They're, they're like many miles in this track. And they, what they do is they take uh, the particles of a, of a proton and they get it running real fast and they run them into each other and they break apart. And when they break them apart, they, they see things. Uh, and it shows them other dimensions way beyond what we have today they have actually found the item that if you hit it with the right energy are you ready for this? it makes ferrite that's iron they can make iron we're taking energy and making it into matter at the famous big bang that we believe that God spoke and all of these things happened There was a tremendous amount of energy that hit, and the first product of it was light. And all of a sudden, things came into being. God spoke, and boom, the universe exploded and came into being. Uh, The Scripture is telling us there that the Messiah... He was the part that was the life. He didn't just make a place. He made a place where life lives. And he was the original life uh, for it. Now, this gospel goes on to say a little bit more about that. Let Let me elaborate on what he says that also takes place in the beginning. He starts to talk about the beginning of Yeshua's ministry. How did Yeshua actually come on the scene? How did the Messiah first get introduced to us? Just like the creation of man. Where was man at? There was a garden. How, how did man come forth? What happened to man that caused him to be kicked out of the garden? Here we are. And so in the beginning, that portion tells us the story. Well, the, we have corresponding elements for us to understand. This work of the Messiah, how did it really get started? What transpired First, he goes on to say this, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John, not the John who wrote this. He came for witness that he might bear witness of the light and that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. By the way, the Torah teaches us without the confirmation, without the evidence of two or three, you can't call anything truth. God had to have a witness. He needed to have a witness to confirm that he had come forward, rather than it just be rumor. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. You know, this is the case of the chicken and the egg. Which came first? We don't know. Honestly, we really don't know. (laughs) You know, here we are. Where, how did we actually come to be? We don't know. But the scripture saying, no, that came from the Messiah. But we don't know who our master is. We don't know who our creator is, do we? We have to learn that because it's not innately within us to recognize it. That comes first to us as a mystery something that is not known, something that has to be uh, learned. But then he says this, verse 11, He came to his own, those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Our congregation's name is Benai Shalom means the children of peace, the children of God. And by taking that title, we're saying that we believe in his name. We believe in who he is. And as a result, God has given us and empowered us to become his children. Verse 13, "...who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." Now, for the sake of discussion... I need to explain that verse by taking you back to Genesis. And if you remember Ephraim, when he covered Genesis there, he talked about how man was created, we were made in the image of God, and um, about how um, you know Cain and Abel came along, we sinned and we got kicked out of the garden, and all of that kind of stuff. and uh, so forth. I'm going to read an interesting verse to you that's from our portion. It's Genesis five. And get to the right page here. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the summation of the story of Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In other words, this is the life of Adam, is what it's saying. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. All right? Adam was made in the image of God. He was made in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, you heard about Cain and Abel. You know, Cain went off to live someplace else. We don't know where, but he went, and Abel was killed. The third son, Seth. The Scripture says that it's from Seth that we have all come from. That Seth then became the father of all of the other descendants of Adam. And if that be so, then you and I, when we were physically born, we were made in the image of Adam and the image of Seth. The image of man. We're not like Adam. Adam was made in the image of God. We're made in the image of Adam. That's a real problem for us. Let me tell you why. Adam died. And that's the reason why every one of us are destined to die. Because we're after Adam. Now, if God's eternal, if you're made in the image of God, the part of being in his image is you're eternal. But if we're made in the image of Adam, who brought sin into the world, death and darkness, then that's our destiny. And the only way that you can defeat that, the only way that you can overcome that, I know you're going to love this, is we need to be born again. Need to be made over again. We need to be born in the image of God, in the Spirit of God, again. Which is what verse 13 says: who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Now, as you know, as we go a little further into John 3, uh, Nicodemus the religious man that came by night to question Yeshua, recognizing that Yeshua was doing things only God could do. He knew that part of him, and he was wanted to ask him some questions. And all of a sudden, uh, Yeshua says to Nicodemus, uh, you do know you need to be born again. Unless you're born again, you, you won't have eternal life. And Nicodemus, he's like confused. You know, born again, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? You can't, can't go back to your mother's womb. You, you know, what, what is that? And Yeshua says, no, 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 that, that's born of the flesh. That's born of the water of life, you know, and from the womb. He said, I'm talking about being born of the Spirit of God, to become one of the sons of God, one of the children of God. That's what I'm talking about. And so we have this famous verse about you have to be born again. This is the logic that comes from Genesis 1. This is the this is the need that's been expressed to us from the very beginning about the work of what the Messiah does. Why did the Messiah come? Anyways, why did he have to come? Anyways, is because of the, the sin and darkness. Every creature since that time has been made in the image of Adam. We need a new we need a new father. We need a new Adam, if you will. So guess what? Paul teaches in Corinthians about how Yeshua, the Messiah, is the second Adam. He's the one so that we're all made in the image of God. And so the the profound thing, it's not by will of men. It's not by uh, blood, fleshly stuff. It's by the Spirit of God, and it's by the will of God. It's by the choice of God. Uh, to do that the Messiah came he was the choice of God to do it for us and he offered himself up to show the picture of that you've got to die to this image of Adam and you have to be reborn to be of the spirit of God it all goes back to the original creation story it's you got to be recreated You know, the world that we got, the one that God originally created, it was good. Everything was great. Until sin came in. Deception and death. And the only way to overcome it is we gotta, quote, start over again. There's no fixing this. We gotta be reborn. And not be of the image of Adam. Any longer, but rather to be of the image of God, which is what God was doing from the very beginning. Now, the logic on this is very simple and very straightforward, and it's repeated for us repeatedly throughout the scripture. And the references, whenever you hear about God being light, and the references to we walk in the light, we're talking about the new creation. We're talking about a new creation where the first element is light, just like the original creation, only the light now is, is spiritual, so that we're born of the Spirit of God. Now personally, I think that this is, can be completely scientifically explained. You see, in the course of my life, we have learned, mankind has learned that the three dimensions that we walk around here as mortals, that it turns out there's more dimensions than three dimensions. That we've already discovered, uh, scientists have already discovered, there's 17 different dimensions. And obviously the spiritual things of God are in those other dimensions. And that somehow we have to make a dimensional transference from the mortal dimensions we're in into spiritual dimensions. And by the way, the Messiah came to do that. He knows all the science of that. Now, that's an actual scientific, logical explanation and um, which the world just can't see it because they don't know the creator. They just don't know the creator. Um, if they knew the creator, they would see the things he was doing and how he did it, but they don't. And so as time goes on with each generation, each year, scientists get a little smarter about the different things of, that God has done. And it always keeps pointing back to what the scripture said. It always keeps pointing back to what God said to begin with. And in the course of my lifetime, I've seen multiple instances of that um, on the effort. You know, I when I went to school, they 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 weren't pushing evolution, but if you were a scientific-minded person, that's what you believed. Uh, the creation thing was just a nice, wonderful, religious, archaic story. But as time has gone on in our generation, there's more and more evidence... Well, in fact, I'll just tell you, all the new evidence coming out on this question all points toward creation. It doesn't point toward, doesn't confirm evolution at all. Not at all. I have seen the electron microscope image of a little tiny creature that has one tail. That's how he moves around. And there's a motor inside him that turns the tail and it flips the tail so he can swim there's an actually a motor inside it's mechanical energy created by a chemical process and it literally has the rotors and it has the core and it spins it that's like something that we would design if we wanted to make a motor The evidence of that God has designed this and created all these things and made all of these things, just the evidence is overwhelming. That doesn't happen by happenstance, and there's nothing that evolves into that. That is purposeful and with intent. And that's all the evidence we keep finding. Somebody purposed to do this. Somebody must have, from the beginning, said, I want to do this and let's do it. And they did it. And that we see all of the evidence thereof from this. Well, I'm here to tell you that in the same way that we look over the natural elements, God knew the problem that we were in, and he purposed from the beginning, I'm going to fix that life problem for the people. I'm going to find a way to restore them. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to recreate them. Now, it takes the power of the Creator to recreate you. You remember that verse in 2 Corinthians, that when you become a believer, you are a new creation? That's not metaphor. He's really saying He's created, you know. Now, as to what dimensions are involved here, I'm not quite sure, but it is part of what He originally created. It's part of His rules, His universe, His... Whatever he created, that's what we're part of. I really believe that after this is all over with and we get to go be with the Messiah and we actually see and understand everything that was going on, we're going to go, duh, well, of course it was that. We were just too stupid and dumb to understand it. I think that's truly what we will come to understand and know in the end. But if we'll simply hold on to what the Lord has really said here, I think it will lend insight to understand so that we have a basis to grasp some of this for our own peace and good. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the new covenant writings, and thank you, Lord, for John reminding us that the Messiah was there in the beginning, that he was the word that was there, and he was the creator that was there, and that the first thing that was brought about was light, and that he was the light of all men as well. We thank you for that, and we pray all of this in the name of our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Shabbat, shalom. Shabbat shalom. And now we we'll leave you with the ironic Blessing.
4: Yevareha, Keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.